Okay, that's recording in progress. No problem. As long as I know which which way we're going, I can do it. This cup, this cup, this cup was on my desk in Berkeley for many years. So it's really nice to have it here. One more transition. Um, so I wanna talk about uh, several things today, you know, how we practice in this time of transition. And um, a little bit about James Baldwin and a little bit about Dogen. So we'll go on a bit of a journey today. So uh, I was thinking that it's an odd time it's a time of transition. I'm not wearing a mask and there's a reason for that. Um, it's from a time of where COVID is a pronounced reality for us to a kind of nether time of wondering what's happening, what's next, what do I do? How do I do it? What's respectful? All those things. It's a time of a return to openness and ability to gather together in person again. And the sense that of not knowing exactly how that is, um, what will happen and how do we wanna, how, what choices do we each make? Um, so along those lines, I wanna I mention um, the work of a committee of dedicated Ocean Gate members who researched COVID science and policies and developed a policy for the Zendo that I think is solid and flexible and well thought out. Um, it not only gives us a workable um, guideline basis for guidelines uh, based on the latest research numbers that tell us about transmission levels and rates, um, which are low enough to permit masking to be optional, as well as diving deep into the efficacy of a well-fitting mask, um, the use of air purifiers. I mean, they really worked hard on this. And, um, so it gives us these guidelines and this policy that we can all rely on. And it's also an example of how we work together as a Sangha. Um, there were varying opinions and concerns on the committee and they took their time to investigate and to discuss everything. But they also didn't get bogged down in the weeds. They actually came up with something. They came together respectfully and carefully as fellow practitioners and served all of us with this policy. So this is a trustworthy process because of their effort and their care, we can trust this process. It's not some kind of um, on the fly of a person that has the most say. It comes from the community. So the community can rely on it. So, it's this kind of dedicated effort, this kind of active practice based on trust and care that knits us together as a Sangha and makes our life together a beautiful thing. So it's a 
it's the fruit of it is this policy that we can rely on, but the process of it is also what we can rely on. A sangha is a sangha because people make it so. A sangha is a place in which we fit, a place of welcome and a place of depth. Recently, a friend of mine who for many years was a Tibetan Buddhist nun sent me an email and um, you know how people on the bottom of emails put quotes or pictures or things like that. And the, the latest one on the bottom of her email uh, was a picture of James Baldwin. And the quote was, the place in which I'll fit will not exist until I make it so, until I make it. The place in which I'll fit will not exist until I make it. In a sense, that is an important aspect of Sangha life, it is what the committee did together. And it's what we all do in our practice. The place, a physical place, a place of life, a place of practice. We don't dictate reality, but we play a role in creating that which serves, a place in which we can fit places, activities, opportunities to simply be, to be together, to practice together. In which I'll fit that which is unique and vital and alive in me, the you that expresses what you have to give the world, not imposing it on others or demanding that they bend to your will, but with deep listening and respect coming forward with others to create something. So this, this is not a fit without rubs or difficulties. It's not perfect. It's a fit. It's a way of being. And it will not exist until I make it. We have a responsibility to ourselves, and to the world. We cannot passively wait for something to come along. We act in concert with reality, with what's possible in this moment to make places, communities, events that serve life. At Ocean Gate and in all the other activities of our lives. So this is a challenging time for all of us, a time of transition of searching and finding and losing our way. It's a time we need to remember what sustains and supports us. It's a time we need to listen, I think, to James Baldwin. Oh, there's many, many times we should listen to James Baldwin on many things. Um, but when we listen to him in this way, uh, we can help create what, what carries us, uh, what carries our values, and we can act to open what we have found of value to others. Uh, and, and we can do that joyfully. I think, um, I know, and we all know, life brings blows, heartaches, old wounds are reopened. Things we thought we had dealt with reemerge. And we can be blindsided by the power of them. 
looking into the future, the sense of optimism that previous times may have had is harder, maybe. War and the vividness of systemic toxic bias, racism, sexism, all those things. Violence and inequality and the climate crisis can flood our world. And along with everyday, sometimes overwhelming struggles, the loss of a job, money troubles, relationship troubles, unwanted transitions, or even wanted transitions. The time of reckoning that is upon us. All that is the world we live in. All that calls on us to take responsibility in this way with others. It can feel as if we are groping in the dark. I think, maybe you'll agree. I'm wondering where the path can lead. We see the challenges, the need for change, and for the deep grounding that will allow us to skillfully negotiate our way by, through our own particular lives and always, always, always with others. That is the buddy system of reality. Humans, non-humans, trees, everything. So there are, are several key things to remember, I think, as we listen to this life and to James Baldwin and to uh, how we want to negotiate this time. Uh, the first thing I think to remember is that Dharma gives us everything we need to manage this. Everything we need, we can find. We are prepared and we can do it. And the Buddhists and ancestors light the way. Whether we think so or not, at any given time, this is true. And we can stay in this world in a way that is life-giving to us. Not easy sometimes, but life-giving to ourselves and others. And since we are in community, when we forget, we have good buddies, mostly human, but also non-human, that will stand by us, remind us that we are not alone. We're bound together will follow the way of Buddha together. And even when our buddies challenge us, rub against us, they are with us, stick with us. And in this kind of community, with this kind of shared commitment towards one another and towards all reality, there is a kind of peace that can emerge and a place that we can be, a place that we fit and bump along together, realizing the way. So we look for um, guidelines, for uh, guides that we can rely on in the process. And one of them, I think, is uh, can be found in Dogen Zenji's Tenjo Kyokun instructions to the cook 
So the head cook of a Soto Zen monastery is a very busy person. Uh, they have menu planning, managing and per the purchased or donated ingredients, the people in the kitchen, which is often the most challenging thing, um, timing of the meals, cooking and cleaning up. I mean, it's a really dynamic, intensely responsible position, managing all that. I think it's a great example for what we have to do in our life. Dogen points out that this position is given to a person mature in the way. It's not something secondary. Oh, that person over there cooks so the rest of us can sit. That is not the way it's seen. It's a highly respected position. This is someone who can express deep practice in caring for the community by taking on this responsibility to cook, to clean, to be with other people. It is filled with multiple challenges and unpredictability. Uh, I think Ryuki was talking about being morning Tenzo at Toshoji and showing up and there was no fuel for the stove <laughs> and rice had to be cooked. Like, like the monks were sitting, right? Or I remember one time at Tassahara, I was cooking something and you know, um, it had to have a, a broth. I mean, it had to have, you know, you had to make a stock and you know what I did? I wasn't really quite awake. <laughs> and instead of keeping the stock, I put the, the stuff from the stock in the colander and poured the stock down the drain. Okay, so what, what do you do then? These people are waiting for you to feed them, you know? And you have to be able to think on your feet with care and uh, with as little sense of desperation as possible. Yeah, it's unpredictable. It's challenging, it's life, right? A monastic thin kitchen is a great training place for life. But we don't have to wait to go to a monastery to have that kind of training. We do it every single day. In a sense, Dogen's words about the monastic cook suit this situation in our lives to a T. So in this text, uh, Dogen writes that the Tenzo should cultivate and maintain three aspects of mind and heart. Joyful mind, heart, kishin. Parental mind, or as uh, Reverend Jisho Siebert puts it, elder's mind, I like that. Mind, heart, roshin. And a great or magnanimous mind, heart, daishin. So notice that each of these terms has the word shin in it, S-H-I-N, which is often, um, perhaps usually translated as mind. But that's tricky for us because um, it doesn't mean, you know, what's between our ears. Something closer is mind heart. Um, we have a tendency to split mind and heart and to rely heavily on this between our ears part of our body and mind. And we split off the body. So it's interesting to look at this and to uh, consider 
how it shows us how we relate to the world and how we can relate to the world. Dogen's teachings don't make this split. And they don't make split between body, heart, and mind. The Dharma is approached through every aspect of life. So we think about the Dharma, we deeply reflect upon it, we consider how to integrate the teachings into our lives, we welcome our heart into the process, we come to know our heart, not our ideas about it, not some kind of just like emotional something, but what it actually is, which may come as a surprise. We open and extend our heart. And we also learn how to transform it by engaging in the teachings that guide us in this way. Compassion in this way is not an emotional roller coaster, but a precise and caring method of engaging in awakened activity with both our minds and hearts and others. Body is a practice, is a pathway of practice. To sit, to move in certain ways teaches us something. This something may or may not come into what we usually think of as knowledge. Considering the body, we come to know that our body is not and has never been separate from others. The entire environment. And we learn through the body when we bow, when we sweep, when we sit, when we cut carrots, when we drink a glass of water, when we dance, when we move. The body teaches us. So each of the mind, heart, body aspects or attitudes that Dogen is asking us to cultivate come alive in each of these dimensions. So we need to consider this. So the first one, Roshi, parental elder mind. We can think of parental elder mind heart Roshin as nurturing, as a way in which we care for others and guide them in the ways of the world. It also means that we look for others who can offer us guidance. We don't think of ourselves as above learning from others, ever. And some people may be our elders in one area and not in another. So no matter what our position, accurate humility is essential. We cannot listen and learn from others without it. My teacher, our teacher, Sojin Roshi always said, in order to lead, you have to be willing to follow. So we listen and we learn and uh, we give guidance and receive guidance and we have this kind of reciprocal caring mind. Dogen tells us that when you handle water or rice or anything else, you must have the affectionate and caring concern of a parent raising a child. So think of, think of, of everything that we hold, everything that we touch, everything that we care for, everything that we engage in to have that kind of spirit. It seems to me this kind of um, affection is full of respect for the integrity of the other. 
water, rice, people, everything is treated as a vital part of reality, not an object for our use. This is a deeply connected way of living. It extends to all others, to our own minds, our hearts, our bodies, and nothing is excluded. We do our best with respect and gratitude, knowing we are not perfect, knowing our elders are not perfect. We listen to the wisdom of the ancients. We listen to the wisdom of those who have gone before. We listen to the wisdom of our own experience, our body, our mind, our heart. We give it our best shot. And when we miss, we pick up the pieces and take the next step. That in, this, in itself is an expression of elder's wisdom. So I was reminded again of John Lewis and his perspective on giving up in the face of continued racist violence and pain. And, you know, he was like, giving up? <laughs> like, what's that about? When do we give up? He knew what it meant to keep going when it was the only option. There is grace and wisdom and freedom in knowing you're keeping on. Nothing can stop you, especially your own mind can't stop you. This is nourishing yourself. This is nourishing others and this is nourishing the path. There is a peace in each step that way. Thich Nhat Hanh tells us this. Enacting this step is the vow. And in that vow, not the completion of the vow, is where we find liberation. It is vast, it is endless, and this is one of the other dimensions that Dogen points us to, which is Daishin, great mind, vast, magnanimous mind and heart. So great mind and heart is the sense of a stable, solid mountain, like the vastness of the ocean, tolerant, open, able to include anything, not ruled by bias or petty thinking or feeling. A magnanimous mind and heart can see changes of the seasons, changes of life without limit. So there is the vast, stable ability to just be here. Even beyond seeing, even when we can't see it, which is much of the time, I think you'll agree, we can rely on it. We know we're of this whole, moving with reality and in concert with all beings. So there is this sense of serenity and peace, a bottomless peace we can trust completely because it's not different from who we are. In our practice, we come to know this and the openness to all beings. This openness, this stability is the fruit of this dimension of practice. From this, we act with clear-sighted generosity. We touch calmness and bring calmness to 
fraught and tumultuous situations, including our tumultuous inner world. No, we are not saying, I'm calm, I am serene, nothing can bother me. I, I, I am a mountain. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're like, I'm not a mountain. <laughs> I'm a scared human being. I'm hurting. I'm angry. I'm struggling. I just got knocked for a loop. Okay. Come back. Come back. So we cultivate reminding ourselves that we are not different from this mountain, this serenity, even when it feels very far away. Doing this brings us to the last of the three minds I want to talk about today, Kishim, joyful mind. And I think this may be of particular importance to us right now. Joyful mind is not the accomplishment of banishing suffering and pain and heartache. As I've said before, good luck with that. If you're trying to play whack-a-mole with any form of suffering or heartache, that's what you'll do with your life. You'll be constantly looking. Where is it? Whack. Where is it? Whack. Where's it popping? Whack, whack, whack. Doesn't that just like breed anxiety and difficulty and aggression? When we have Daishin, even for a moment, or we know Daishin is available to us, when we care, then joy is possible. Our world is our world. It is the Saha world. And joyful mind and heart is right there in the midst of everything. We cannot manufacture it or grasp it or set up conditions that will guarantee it. I recently saw this study, which I think is really good, but also a little bit, a wee bit problematic. So they did the study and they said, people will be healthier if they include a certain amount of awe in their lives. Sounds good, right? And then I thought, I can just see it. Okay, I have 15 minutes before my next meeting. Where's awe? Come on, come on, give me some awe. I need it, I need to be healthy. I need to be healthy. So I need some awe right now, spit it out. <laughs> I'm busy. Aw, get your butt in gear. <laughs> Doesn't work that way, right? But we can take care of ourselves and establish ourselves with some trust that the mountain is there, even when we don't see it. And we can invite joy. We can invite awe, even in our mixed up lives. We can simplify, we can listen, we can take care, we can practice gratitude. Sometimes I like to read obituaries. Do you, anybody else do that? I've always wanted, I've always done that. 
but lately I look in the Sentinel to see if any of my old buddies are <laughs> bit the dust. Um, anyway, so there are a lot of interesting people in this world. I think you'll agree. So many ordinary people are just fascinating. And so this one I read was about a woman who died recently in Santa Cruz at the age of 108. And she lived through many things, obviously, including the death of her father and her husband on the same day when she was 36 and several bouts of cancer. So these are a couple of things that she had to say. She said, you have to accept pain as your friend during periods of your life. Have you heard that before? I don't know if this woman was a Buddhist, but she was alive for 108 years. So I think she figured something out. She also said about sustaining herself, she said, find a place inside where there is joy and the joy will burn out the pain. These are the words of an elder with a very broad view, I think. So joy is brought forth from our deepest being in the midst of the imperfect, sometimes fraught life we have right alongside in the midst of situations of grief and fear, pain, frustration, heartache, anxiety, boredom. And when it does emerge, everything changes. Our world changes, it opens, it settles. Our sense of perspective is restored. Life comes back alive. Nothing has changed. The situation you're in is not different but it's different. Sometimes we need to actively remember this. This is one of the reasons why we have these specific practices we do. Or we need others to bring it forth, to remind us. So all three of these work together. Always joyful mind, heart, elder mind, heart, and magnanimous mind, heart are possible in this path of practice. That's crucial to remember. They interweave, they work in concert, and they support one another. We can enter in any place in this threesome, and it will lead to the others. When we care for ourselves and our world with the mind and heart of an elder, a parent, a person with wisdom and a long view, when we take seriously our job as future ancestors, we become more steady, more open, more able to access calm and stability in the midst of turmoil. We know ourselves to be of the lineage of elders, of ancestors who carry wisdom into our current life and beyond. We are not different from them. We carry that for future generations. We are just one link, one aspect, one simple person. And that is more than enough. We have equanimity and a magnanimous view when we remember this. With this long, broad view and the peace, at least occasional peace that it can bring the fleeting presence of joy can be felt with gratitude. And this gratitude 
nourishes the mind and heart of joy, which in turn supports our deep engagement in the world as an elder and opens us up to a magnanimous view. When we establish a generous, magnanimous mind, so if we come at it from that point of view, that includes all beings and rests deeply in the teachings and the community of life, our desire and capacity to, to care for others accurately and with empathy grows. And with both those present, a joyful mind comes forward. We can taste it. We can be guided and sustained by it. We can share it with others. We can keep our perspective and our sense of humor, our humility, and our connection with all beings. Dogen Zenji says, a joyful spirit is one of gratefulness and buoyancy. You should consider this carefully. A joyful spirit is one of gratefulness and buoyancy. You should consider this carefully. This is a natural thing, you know. Sometimes there's this example used where, you know, if, if there's a balloon of air and you push it down under the water, it naturally pops back up. That's our true nature. That's our joy. That's our stability. Sure, you can push it down under the water, but you only have to move your hand and it will pop back up. So I think we should consider carefully all, all these three. We can ask ourselves, sit down and do this. Think about this. What is missing most in your life of these? Which of these three draws you most right now? What are you too busy to include? Take this seriously. What exactly are you doing? What and how can you actively dive into what will bring you alive in accord with these three minds? Make this concrete. Make a deal with yourself. If you can, make a deal with a, with a buddy. Something that will keep you gently close to this in your mind and heart. Think of the words of James Baldwin. The place in which I fit will not exist until I make it. With all, I would add, with all beings. Find a few words or a place or a posture or a song or an act of giving that recalls you to this. Sit down with it. So there is zazen, there is shikantaza, and we don't confuse that with another practice. But we are not barred from cultivating elements that support us. Dogen wrote often of these things, including in this fascicle. So we do this every day. And we support nourishing ourselves and others. Mm -hmm.